There are so many religions in the world. How are they similar and how are they different? We need to know. The culturally correct view is to blend them all together as equally relevant and legitimate. But is that true? Prior to becoming a follower of Jesus, your host, Mike Shreve, was an avid seeker of truth, exploring many paths to spirituality. One of his passions now is to help bridge the gap so that others can discover the true light, which gives light to everyone entering the world. Now, here's Mike Shreve revealing the true light. Thank you so much for taking the time to join me as we continue our examination of the beliefs of Roman Catholicism. On this particular episode, our focus is purgatory. Is purgatory real? Is there such a place of temporary suffering for those who do not deserve hell, but have not achieved enough holiness to enter heaven? Is purgatory intended for punishment or for purification? The Catholic Church offers various means of earning something called indulgences in order for believers to escape either a portion or all of the time that they are required to spend in purgatory. They can also earn indulgences for those who have already passed on but are incarcerated in this spiritual abode. Is there scripture for these kinds of beliefs? We're about to find out. Stay with me as I reveal the true light. Now, the concept of purgatory did not become a popular belief until the end of the 12th century. In the 14th Ecumenical Council that took place in 1274 A.D., this doctrine was one of the major issues that prevented a reunification of the Eastern Orthodox Church with the Catholic Church. It was not a part of the original doctrine of the apostles. Peter, James, and John never promoted this concept. It did not become a dominant belief until over a thousand years later. It is important to note that purgatory is not for punishment. Instead, it is intended to atone for sin. It's an expiation of sin, and it is for purification, to cleanse a person of any remaining defilement so that that person can qualify for the perfection of heaven. It is not always depicted as a place of fiery torment. In fact, fire has never been included in the Catholic Church's defined doctrine of purgatory. However, speculation about a fiery nature associated with purgatory is traditional among many who embrace this belief. Recent popes, such as Pope John Paul II or Pope Benedict XVI, have declared that the term does not indicate a place, an actual place, but a condition of existence, whatever that means, because that's kind of a vague description. Pope Benedict XVI described, and I quote, the fire which both burns and saves is Christ himself, the judge and savior. And of course, that's 
based on scriptures like Hebrews 12, 29, that says, our God is a consuming fire. And the implication of that is a purification, a purifying fire. The Catholic Church holds that all who die in God's grace and friendship, friendship with God, but are still imperfectly purified, have to undergo this process of purification, which the church feels is necessary in order to achieve the holiness required in order to enter the perfection and the joy of heaven. It is interesting to me to note that some other religions teach a similar idea. For instance, it's taught in Hinduism that there are 21 hells, 21 levels of hell beneath the netherworld that a soul may pass through for purification on its way to reincarnation. The Catholic Church bases its teaching primarily on the book of 2 Maccabees, chapter 12, verses 39 through 46. Now, I'll summarize what's in that passage of a book that is not included in the 66 books that are embraced by Protestant believers. This passage describes Judas Maccabeus, and his associates praying forgiveness for certain Jewish soldiers who had been killed in battle because it was discovered that they were wearing amulets associated with a false god, a false deity. And Judas also took up a collection, I believe it was 2,000 silver drachmas, and sent it to Jerusalem as an atonement for the souls of these soldiers. It is never said whether doing this was actually a legitimate practice or not. It may have been customary among the Jews, though not commanded anywhere in the Old Testament. But on the basis of this historical account, this idea, this concept of purgatory has been both embraced and promoted. The strongest argument that is given is based on 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 11 through 15. And I'll quote that entire passage. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved yet so as through fire. Now, this is a very mysterious passage that gives grounds for speculation because it can be interpreted several ways, but it does not raise a clear enough argument to validate the doctrine of purgatory on its own. Let me break it down a little bit. First of all, is talking about those who have laid the foundation of Jesus Christ in their lives, 
It's not talking about those outside of Christianity or outside of a biblical belief system. It's talking about believers. And it says, if anyone builds on this foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, and the King James Version says stubble, everyone's work will become clear for the day will declare it. And that's capital D with the word day. What's that referring to? What day is being referenced? I believe it is the day of the Lord, the last day of this age, the day when Jesus will come. And the Bible says he will come in flaming fire and with all his holy angels. My interpretation is that in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, he will discern, he will judge who is worthy, who died in grace, who did not die in grace. He will determine who should be raised from the dead, who should be translated that is a living believer at the moment of his return, and all will be glorified and made to be immortal and live on with him in the kingdom which is yet to come. And what a wonderful future that will be. Now, in that moment of transformation, God will have to determine exactly what eternal reward will be due to the individuals included in the resurrection. And of course, he would have to review all of the works that we have done in his name, whether those works were inspired of God, performed with sincerity and worship, or if there was some kind of uh, negative or carnal attitude associated with something we did in the name of quote-unquote religion. Just because something is performed in the name of Christianity doesn't mean it is a valid work in the sight of heaven. And so all that determination will take place when the Lord Jesus Christ comes back again as he ushers us into the new era, the messianic era, when he will reign on this earth. And that flaming fire is the exposure of the root motive and the true nature of our works. I do not believe it means that true sons and daughters of God will be thrown into some kind of temporary state called purgatory in order to pay off their misdeeds or in order to be purified and made more perfect. We will be purified in a moment. The Bible said that in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, the dead in Christ will rise and we which are alive and remain will be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air. And yes, God is depicted as fire. And it's a good kind of fire. It is a holy kind of fire. There is the fire of hell, which would be a tormenting fire. But then we also see in heaven that there is a, a sea of glass mingled with fire before the throne of God. And 
And the one who sits on the throne has eyes like flames of fire. And there are wheels of fire on either side of the throne and a stream of fire that proceeds from before him. And all of that is a depiction of holy fire, righteous fire, ecstatic fire, intense transformational holy fire. It's not the fire of pain and suffering. And so the same symbol can be used two different ways. Now, I need to go into another aspect of it because of something that Catholics call the communion of the saints. The faithful who are still pilgrims on the earth are able to help souls who are in purgatory by offering prayers for them or various rituals performed for their benefit, like a special mass being said and dedicated to them. These Catholics who are still on the earth can also do things like almsgiving or various works of penance and dedicate it to those who have gone on in order to alleviate their pain, their time of suffering, or to lessen their time of suffering in purgatory. And indulgences can be partial or plenary. They can remove either a part of the punishment due to sin or all of it. And the faithful can gain indulgences for themselves and then apply it to the dead. Now, this was one of the main things that Martin Luther stood against. And one of the main things he addressed when he nailed the 98 Theses to the door of the church in Wittenberg. Let me give you a few examples of things that can be done in order to quote-unquote earn indulgences. Those who say the short prayer, Sacred Heart of Jesus, I place my trust in thee. Just that short, very succinct prayer can earn a hundred to three hundred or more days of indulgences. Therefore, those who discipline themselves to say it a hundred times a day can earn 30,000 days indulgence. Or if they say it a thousand times a day, they can earn 300,000 days of indulgence. Here's another example. Every Hail Mary of the rosary enables a believer who prays the rosary to earn 2,000 days indulgence. And then there's something called a scapular. A scapular originally was a larger vestment worn by monks, but then later on it was reduced in size to become a necklace consisting of two small, usually rectangular pieces of cloth or wood or laminated paper, a few inches in size, which usually bear religious images or text. And there are 18 scapulars approved by the church. One is a brown scapular dedicated to Our Lady of Mount Carmel, which is a place where supposedly Mary made an appearance. And on July 16, 1251, St. Simon Stock, who was a superior in a monastic order, claimed to receive a visit from Mary in answer to his prayers, and she handed him a brown scapular, saying, whoever dies wearing this scapular shall not suffer eternal fire. And then 
there was a second appearance of Mary concerning this scapular to Pope John the Twelfth in the year 1322. And supposedly she said these words, I, the mother of grace, shall descend on the Saturday after the death of a believer, and whomsoever I shall find in purgatory, I shall free. And so supposedly those who wear the brown scapular can either escape eternal hellfire by doing so, or if they have not been purified enough and they happen to go to purgatory, then on the Saturday after that person's death, Mary will descend into purgatory and release them from it. Now, are these biblical concepts? Of course not. You cannot find these things referenced in Scripture. And even the, the passages that are used to justify a belief in purgatory are unclear and can be interpreted a completely different way. Only heaven and hell are clearly taught in, in the Protestant version of the Bible with its 66 books. Also, the following scriptures are essential in dismantling this doctrine. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 says, For by grace have you been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And the word works includes things like dedicating a mass to someone's departure from purgatory, or praying hundreds of prayers, repetitious prayers, which incidentally Jesus said not to do. He said, use not vain repetitions like the heathen do. And, and to think that the repetition of prayers could actually earn deliverance is an insult to the blood of Jesus. If we can earn deliverance from some type of terrible afterlife, through these religious works, then Jesus did not have to go to the cross. It was totally in vain for him to suffer. Either the blood that he shed is powerful enough to wipe sin out of our hearts and lives, or we've got to do something in order to progress spiritually. Now, let me read 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Now, the word propitiation means satisfaction for the demands of justice. If Jesus's death on the cross is enough satisfaction for the demands of justice that we go free from the contamination of our past, then what can we add to that? Romans 3.24 says, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And it mentions no other means of being justified. And the word justified means to be acquitted of all guilt, just as if you never sinned, and to be considered righteous, to be reckoned righteous in the sight of God. I'm reminded of how 
Martin Luther, the Catholic monk who was such a soul-searching, God-fearing man who could not feel right with God, who was tormented beyond description. He said he went through such mental anguish that no pen could describe it, trying to feel delivered from the guilt of his sin. But then one day he read Romans 1.17, the just shall live by faith. And he realized it was faith alone that would justify him in the sight of God. Faith in the cross, faith in the blood that Jesus shed, faith in his perfect life, faith in his resurrection, faith in his ascension, and faith in his power to save anyone who calls on his name. When Luther realized that, he said, I felt myself to have been reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. He said, this passage of Paul became to me a gate to heaven. No wonder Luther and other reformers summarized their insights in five sola statements, sola scriptura, sola fide, sola gratia, sola Christos, sola Deo gloria. And the word sola means only. And those statements mean only scripture, only faith, only grace, only Christ, and only for the glory of God. In other words, salvation eternally is not dependent on works. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. It's only through the scripture, not through any other beliefs or traditions or supposed revelations, only scripture, only faith, only grace, only Christ, and it's all only for the glory of God. Thank you for joining Mike Shreve today on Revealing the True Light, and thank you for opening your mind and your heart to the truth. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, cpnshows.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss new episodes. You can explore the beliefs of many world religions more deeply by ordering Mike Shree's book titled In Search of the True Light. We also invite you to visit our website, thetruelight.net, and sign up to be part of our global internet family.